Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, July 14th, 2022, the 540th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Just want to start by quickly extending a thank you to all those of you who are signing up for paid subscriptions at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You are what allows me to continue to devote my time to this show and produce it every day the way I want to and to keep it growing. So thank you very much. If you are listening to this show delayed on another platform, the way to hear the show on the day of its release is to become a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can subscribe for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Either way, it comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll get all the writing right when I initially post it. So do it if you want to support the show and you can, I don't want anybody enduring further financial hardships by supporting the show. If you can, I would appreciate it. If you can't all good. In fact, if you get in touch with me, there are people in the telegram chat who have sponsored year long subscriptions for people who are struggling right now. And if you want to contact me privately, I'm more than happy to set you up with a year's subscription courtesy of people in the Telegram chat. So a quick update on one of the stories that I've been discussing 
and updating this week. And of course, I'm talking about Pedo Peter. Breitbart has come out today reporting that Pedo Peter is not Joe Biden, as I told all of you on Monday. And as I told people on the Internet on Sunday, it was always that way. It was only that way. It was obviously that way if you looked at the messages and I went and confirmed it in other ways as well. But I know nothing is as fun as a really great meme, except when the meme is wrong, because memes that are wrong cannot be funny. That's why the left can't meme they don't know anything. So the humor disappears as soon as you realize that the factual basis from which they're attempting to derive humor does not exist. Now, is it of dire importance? Maybe not. I am open to that argument. And I'm also open to the argument that Pedo Peter might take on a life of its own and just stick to Joe Biden, despite the fact that it's wrong and people will even admit it's wrong, but still carry on with calling him that. And maybe that leads them to finding out what the actual truth is. There are ways it can go well. I'm not disputing that. What I'm saying is we should try to be right about these sorts of things, because if we're wrong about them and everyone finds out we're wrong about them, they may not listen when the actual Biden laptop report drops. Because pedo Peter doesn't matter nearly as much as the fact that the Bidens We're selling out our country to our foreign adversaries. And it kind of does matter whether or not people will sit there in doubt and denial because they have been misled before by the same people now pushing out the actual story. But let's move on from that. Last night, I was on my friend CanCon's live stream and we were joined by Q out of the darkness That is not the same as the internet cue that everyone is scared of. It's just his first initial. So don't go getting all nervous. And we were joined by Joe Hoft, who is one of the two twins, Jim and Joe, who run the Gateway Pundit. And we had a couple hour long conversation. One of the topics of our conversation was the January 6th, very violent insurrection and Ray Epps himself. Now, the New York Times ran a puff piece on Ray Epps yesterday, reconstruing Ray Epps as the victim of a January 6th conspiracy theory that has ruined his whole life. And it really is a pretty incredible piece. So I want to go through that with you. It's also incredible that this piece exists, that the New York Times is writing an article to prop up Ray Epps. There is video of Ray Epps on January 5th, the evening of January 5th, telling people that it was their duty to their nation to go into the Capitol the next day. And then, of course, there's video of him on January 6th at the Capitol directing people to go in. The New York Times is painting Ray Epps as a victim While actual victims are rotting in D.C. jails who have not faced trial yet and who aren't even accused of anything as serious or as insurrection oriented as Ray Epps telling people on video to go into the Capitol. 
But let's get to the article. The headline is, it's just been hell. Life as the victim of a J6 conspiracy theory. Now, as I said, this article is ridiculous. And I was talking about this last night on the live stream and mentioned that you can often read these mainstream media articles as if they are like these medieval fairy tales or a book like Fifty Shades of Grey. They're meant to be these emotionally gripping stories that reinforce and confirm the central narrative as it has already been set forth for the last year and a half. So sometimes it's helpful to see how ridiculous these articles are by reading them in a voice that really confers the emotionality of the writing. This is very high level stuff here. So. They leave the location, you know, usually it'll say like Denver, Colorado or Tel Aviv, Israel. The New York Times wrote as the location of their article in the Rocky Mountains because Ray Epps is under such threat that even his general location cannot be disclosed. It's just somewhere in the Rockies like he's hiding out on a craggy peak <laughs> where there's a slight dusting of snow. The New York Times had to be helicoptered into his remote and secret location. And here we go. Up a winding road in a trailer park a half mile from a cattle ranch lives a man whose life has been ruined by a January 6th conspiracy theory. Certainly no one in the jail that would not describe any of them, their lives being ruined by a January 6th conspiracy theory. No, it's Ray Epps. Ray Epps has suffered enormously in the past 10 months as right wing media figures and Republican politicians have baselessly described him as a covert government agent who helped to instigate the attack on the Capitol last year. Strangers have assailed him as a coward and a traitor and have menacingly cautioned him to sleep with one eye open. He was forced to sell his business and his home in Arizona, fearing for his safety and uncertain of his future. He and his wife moved into a mobile home in the foothills of the Rockies with all of their belongings crammed into shipping containers in a high desert meadow a mile or two away. And for what? Lies, Epps asked the other day with a look of pained exhaustion. All of this, it's just been hell. Almost from the point that a violent mob stormed the Capitol on January 6th, 2021, allies of former President Donald Trump have sought to shift the blame for the attack away from the people who were in the pro-Trump crowd that day to any number of scapegoats. First, they pointed at Antifa, the leftist activists who have a history of clashing with Trump's backers, but who did not show up when the Capitol was breached. You got that? Antifa definitely was not there. There's no way. It's a baseless claim. Now, John Sullivan was absolutely there. In fact, he walked through the Capitol with a quote unquote photojournalist named Jade Sacker, and then he appeared with her on CNN that night to discuss the very violent insurrection. John Sullivan, whose online name is Jaden X, 
was actually filming quite a bit of what happened inside the Capitol, including the shooting of Ashley Babbitt during the second impeachment hoax, where they tried to condemn Donald Trump for the very violent insurrection and say that he incited the violence in the crowd by saying we need to walk peaceably and patriotically to the Capitol and make our voices heard. That was the signal for violence. Remember, he told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. But that very impeachment committee used video from John Sullivan, Jaden X, in their very convincing video montages. Now, is Jaden X slash John Sullivan associated with Black Lives Matter Antifa? Why, yes, he was. Were other Antifa members at the Capitol? Why, yes, they were. In fact, Trump supporters were there trying to stop Antifa from doing things like breaking windows or instigating violence. But let's forget about all that baseless claims. The New York Times, the paper of record, says Antifa just did not show up when the Capitol was breached. Oh, sure. Then they tried to fault the FBI, which, according to those who spread the baseless tale, planned the attack to provoke a crackdown on conservatives. Epps, 61, was not just a bystander January 6th. He traveled to Washington to back Trump, was taped urging people to go to the Capitol, and was there himself on the day of the assault. But through a series of events that twisted his role, he became the face of this conspiracy theory about the FBI as it spread from the fringes to the mainstream. Obscure right-wing media outlets like Revolver News use selectively edited videos and unfounded leaps of logic to paint him as a secret federal agent in charge of a breach team responsible for setting off the riot at the Capitol. Now, Darren Beatty is a Ph.D., and he was also a Trump speechwriter, so he's not exactly obscure. But hey, compared to The New York Times, everybody is obscure. And if you are the sort of child brain who still pays attention to The New York Times, and I should say takes The New York Times seriously, then the claimed obscurity of Revolver News will make you know that you should not ever pay attention to Revolver News. Now, were any of the videos that Darren Beatty has discussed in his many articles on January 6th selectively edited? No, they are not. What videos are selectively edited? Well, all of the videos used in the second fake impeachment over the very violent insurrection and absolutely all of the videos used in the television show being put on by the unselect committee for the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. But the New York Times does not care about that at all. The stories about Epps were quickly seized on by Fox News host Tucker Carlson, who gave them a wider audience. They were also echoed by Republican members of Congress like Representative Thomas Massey of Kentucky and Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. They were spreading conspiracy theories. Eventually, Trump joined the fray, mentioning Epps at one of his political rallies and lending fuel to a viral Twitter hashtag. Hashtag, who is Ray Epps? Well, how'd he do that? 
How did he do that? Isn't that strange? Trump wasn't on Twitter. His Twitter got banned in the wake of the very violent insurrection. And of course, all the social media sites removed the video of Trump asking his supporters to go home in peace because they didn't want that to be part of the narrative. Wait a second. Trump was simultaneously trying to incite a very violent insurrection and overthrow the legitimate government, the legitimate congressional process that was taking place. But he also asked all of the insurrectionists he brought to Washington to go home. How do those two facts make sense together? Well, of course they don't. And that's part of the problem with the mainstream narrative. It just simply isn't true. After months of watching from the shadows as public figures he once respected, Trump among them, tarred his name and destroyed his reputation, Epps decided that he wanted to answer that question for himself. In a day-long interview, sitting in his air-conditioned recreational vehicle with his wife Robin and their two shih tzus beside him, Epps described himself as a father, a former Marine, and a staunch but disillusioned conservative whose leaders had betrayed him. He granted the interview on the condition that the location of his new home not be disclosed. Hence, somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. So the New York Times had access to Ray Epps for a day, and they know his secret location, his hideout, nestled in the foothills. I am at the center of this thing. And it's the biggest farce that's ever been, he said. It's just not right. The American people are being led down a path. I think it should be criminal. To that end, Epps and his wife have been searching for a lawyer to help them file a defamation lawsuit against several of the people who have spread the false accounts. Should they end up doing so, they would join a list of other individuals and companies, most notably voting machine producer Dominion Voting Systems, in using the courts to push back on the rampant disinformation that emerged again and again during Trump's efforts to overturn the election. The truth needs to come out, Epps explained, petting his dogs. While Epps was a participant in some of the events that unfolded January 6th, the claim that he inspired the Capitol riot in a false flag plot is solely based on the fact that he has never been arrested and therefore must be under the protection of the government. Well, no one's claiming that he inspired the Capitol riot. No one's claiming that. People are claiming that he helped to instigate the breach of the Capitol, the breach and that he helped instigate the violence. He was like a hype man the night before and the day of. All you have to do is watch video of Ray Epps to see that. There's Ray Epps on video doing exactly what we are saying he's doing. Of this, there is no doubt, except to people like the New York Times, who think that everything that disputes their case is disinformation. And so it's not merely the fact that he's never been arrested. It's the video. It's also that he was on the FBI's most wanted list and then simply disappeared from that list. But the full story goes well beyond that. It's not an unfounded conspiracy theory so that we have someone to blame that's not Trump supporters. 
We already know that all of this stuff is true. And then AOC was out on the Capitol steps talking about people who were clearly letting people into the building. So whoops, I guess. But scores, if not hundreds of people who appear to have committed minor crimes that day were investigated by the FBI, but have not been charged or taken into custody. So because the FBI hasn't charged every single person that was at the Capitol that day, that means it's not weird that Ray Epps was on the FBI's most wanted list and then disappeared from it. Got that? That's the New York Times telling you what you should think about that. Epps said that he had acted stupidly at times when he and one of his sons took a last minute trip to Washington for Trump's speech about election fraud. But he said that he had managed to avoid arrest because he reached out to the FBI within minutes of discovering that agents wanted to speak to him and demonstrated during interviews with them that he had spent much of his time at the Capitol seeking to calm down other rioters, an assertion supported by multiple video clips. But of course, the opposite of that assertion is also supported by multiple video clips. And Ray Epps didn't simply find out that the FBI wanted to speak with him. He was on their wanted list. And remember, there is some actual testimony before Congress that backs up the conspiracy theory from the independent UK in January. The statement came after the FBI and Justice Department leadership refused to confirm or deny under oath whether Mr. Epps was working with federal authorities or whether they knew why he hasn't been charged in connection to the violence. You know, because they can't speak about ongoing investigations. Epps, who questioned the results of the election, was also interviewed twice by the House Select Committee on January 6th. After his dealings with the panel were completed, officials released a statement saying he had told them that he never worked as an asset for or an employee of any federal law enforcement agency. So rather than giving the quote from Ray Epps where he says that, they summarize what he says he told the committee. And hey, what about intel agencies? One of the moments Epps said he regrets most from his stay in Washington took place the night before the Capitol attack, when he joined his son and a friend for a pro-Trump rally at Black Lives Matter Plaza. During the event, he was videotaped by a right-wing provocateur, encouraging people to go inside the Capitol on January 6th in what he described, even at the time, as a form of peaceful protest. The clip has been used to depict Epps as a man who not only urged people to riot at the Capitol, but also then evaded prosecution. The Justice Department has not publicly addressed its decision not to charge him, but the legal definition of incitement requires a person's words to cause an immediate threat of danger, not one that could possibly occur the following day. You see, you got that? That's why Trump was definitely inciting people when he said we should peaceably and patriotically march to the Capitol and make our voices heard. You see, that happened on the same day, whereas Ray Epps said his thing 13 or 14 hours earlier. And sure, Trump said peaceably and patriotically make our voices heard. 
And Ray Epps said, you need to go into the Capitol. (laughs) As any reasonable person can attest, Trump was inciting violence and Ray Epps was just making sure that everyone remained peaceful. Does the New York Times understand what's going on here? Of course. Do they expect their readers to? Not at all. In fact, they hope their readers don't. They've presented nothing but propaganda surrounding January 6th for a year and a half. They expect and know that their readers don't know anything real about January 6th. And knowing that, they're able to say whatever they want. On January 6th itself, Epps, believing he could stop the violence at the Capitol, inserted himself into a conflict between the police and members of the pro-Trump mob that is widely considered to be the tipping point of the attack. He can be seen in videos from around 1 p.m. that day, accosting a rioter named Ryan Samsel, who had already started to confront officers behind a metal barricade on the west side of the Capitol. Epps said he intervened in the conflict to keep Samsel from attacking the police and tried to tell Samsel that the officers were merely doing their jobs. Samsel gave an identical account to the FBI when he was arrested weeks later. Epps also said he regretted sending a text to his nephew well after the violence had erupted, in which he discussed how he helped to orchestrate the movements of people who were leaving Trump's speech near the White House by pointing them in the direction of the Capitol. So to the New York Times, when it comes to Ray Epps, this is just basically a typo. He regrets sending this text. In the grand scope of things, this text is absolutely meaningless. But Donald Trump saying that we need to march peaceably and patriotically to the Capitol so we can make our voices heard. That's incitement. Epps further acknowledged that while he moved past barricades into a restricted area of the Capitol grounds, he did not go into the building itself. The vast majority of those who did not enter the building or commit additional crimes have not been charged. You got that? The numbers in the aggregate tell you that there's no problem. And the New York Times, of course, wants you to agree that there's no problem. The vast majority of protesters on that day who did not go into the Capitol remain uncharged. But the vast majority is not the concern. It's the people who remain in prison now for a year plus, some of them a year and a half, while also not going into the Capitol and not saying anything to incite any behavior which does not describe Ray Epps. That's the problem. And it's a symptom of the communist worldview in general, that when they can describe something in the aggregate as not a problem, that means it's not a problem for the people that that doesn't describe. It actually is a huge problem that we have political prisoners rotting away in the D.C. gulag without trial. That's actually a problem. It is a violation of their civil rights and their human rights. By the time the violence started spreading, Epps had already left the Capitol, having helped to get a sick protester to safety. My hero! The problems began for Epps almost as soon as Revolver News published its first article about him in October. Suddenly, there were emailed death threats, trespassers on his property demanding answers about January 6th. 
and acquaintances, fellow members of his church, and even family members who disowned him, he said. Things became significantly worse after Carlson and prominent politicians began to amplify the lies. In late December, Epps' wife discovered shell casings on the ground near the bunkhouse of the farm-style wedding venue they owned in Arizona, suggesting that someone had been shooting at the building. Well, was the, uh, was the building hit? Just shell casings? All right. <laughs> I mean, it's literally a common phrase for bad aim that you can't hit the broadside of a barn. Now, we are being told that someone <laughs> was shooting at the building but missed? Really? It's amazing. It's amazing. Then, in January, Epps received a letter from someone claiming to have been brought into the country by a Mexican drug cartel. <laughs> Who was it? A Democrat? The writer said he had overheard some cartel members talking about killing Epps. <laughs> I write on paper to tell you, you need to be lookout. The letter said in broken English, these drug gang people, very bad people. Whether it was real or just a demented joke, Epps's wife went into hiding leaving Epps to arm himself and run the family business for a while through his security team. Oh, Ray Epps has a security team for his farm-style wedding venue that he continued to run after arming himself? Really? He was worried about Instagram influencers wanting his farm-style backdrop for their wedding? There might be incidents. Ultimately, the couple sold the business and their ranch-style house, losing hundreds of thousands of dollars and wrecking the arrangements they had made for their retirement. These poor people. It has been a nightmare, Robin Epps said. After leaving Arizona for the mountains months ago, the Eppses have not done much. They managed to spend their time with their children and some of their 37 grandchildren, but mostly keep to themselves. After all, you wouldn't want them disclosing their remote location. Epps has taken to wearing a wide-brimmed hat that hides his face. If people at the gas station or grocery store say he looks familiar, he will usually smile and then be on his way. Oh, the horror. While he wants to clear his name, he is under no illusion that he will ever manage to divorce it fully from the lies. They'll always be associated, Epps said. You can't convince some people. There are extremists out there that you'll never convince them that they're wrong. Wow. Wow. What a heart-rending tale. The strength of this one man to weather such abuse and harassment from conspiracy theorists. If only there was some way to put it all to bed once and for all. I mean, sure, he could go on any number of media platforms, including in the mainstream, and tell his story in as much detail as he wanted. His side, get it all out there. 
But you can't do that, you see, because that only makes the conspiracy theorists work harder. Oh, it's a catch-22 to live in such a state. You want to get the truth out. You want to warn the public and let them know. But there are no venues where your voice can actually be heard because of all the propaganda and the censorship that leads these conspiracy theorists forward. You have to turn to tiny outlets on the fringes like the New York Times and the January 6th committee and MSNBC and CNN and Fox News. And literally anybody will put Ray Epps on the television to tell his story at as great a length as he wants. That's right. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, it's the conspiracy theorists who are actually searching for the truth who are censored and their voices are marginalized. Man, I always get that mixed up just like the New York Times does. Now, changing subjects without a segue, let's go to Italy. Over the past week, there have been massive protests calling for the ouster of Italy's government and specifically Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi. And just within the last few minutes, this headline on CNBC, Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi says he will resign after fresh political chaos in Rome. Mario Draghi on Thursday said he would resign as Italian Prime Minister after a political party in his ruling coalition in Rome refused to participate in a confidence vote earlier on in the day. I will tender my resignation to the president of the republic this evening. Draghi told the cabinet, according to a statement translated by Reuters, throwing Italian politics back into a fragile state of affairs. The National Unity Coalition that backed this government no longer exists, he said. The Five Star Movement, one of the parties in the coalition government led by Draghi, opposed a new decree aimed at lowering inflation and battling rising energy costs. Now, remember, we are talking about global state Propaganda media, CNBC. And it's important to notice this because CNBC would describe the Build Back Better plan, the World Economic Forum agenda, also known as the Global Communist Agenda, and known by Brian Deese, one of Joe Biden's economic advisors, as the liberal world order in the exact same terms. They would say that the Build Back Better plan is designed to lower inflation and battle rising energy costs. Because, of course, they will construe these plans in any way necessary to make them sound good to the people. They're going to battle rising energy costs by cutting off oil completely and expanding green energy. So, in five years, or 10 years, or 20 years, or 50 years, energy costs theoretically, will begin to decline at some point, just as we planned. But of course, these are the same people who are responsible for the rising inflation and energy costs in the first place, but disregard that. Analysts, however, have argued that the opposition to this policy package is not so much ideological, but as a result of internal party disputes. So it's not that there's any problem with the plans. It's just drama. Italy's lawmakers held a confidence vote on the wide ranging policy package Thursday. Five Star boycotted the vote despite Draghi previously threatening to step down if the party didn't back it. 
The move by the M5S was largely triggered by turmoil prevailing within the ailing party rather than by meaningful policy differences with the executive. Wolfango Piccoli, co-president of the consultancy firm Taneo, said in a note Thursday. Now, if you were to bet whether or not Taneo was a World Economic Forum partner, what would you bet? Oh, uh, you'd bet that they were? Ha, turns out they are. They're listed right on the World Economic Forum site. So old Wolfango Piccoli is representing the World Economic Forum when he frames this issue this way. The move by the M5S was largely triggered by turmoil prevailing within the ailing party rather than by meaningful policy differences with the executive. So no problem with the policy. It's just the leader. Where did we hear that before? Well, I talked about it yesterday for about a half an hour. They're trying to do the same thing with the deposed prime minister in Sri Lanka, as I talked about on Tuesday, and they're doing it with Joe Biden, as I talked about yesterday. They want to remove the leader from the policy. They want to tell everybody, oh, you know what? The leader was just no longer connecting with the people. We need to remove the leader, but the policy is just fine. In fact, the people want the policy. Remember when they overwhelmingly voted for it in the safest and most secure election of all time? They love it. Draghi has been in power since February 2021 and has led a government formed by several parties and technocrats with the aim to bring stability to the southern European nation, which is often thrown into fresh rounds of political chaos. Uh, could that be because the people don't want the World Economic Forum making all their decisions for them? Yes, it could be exactly that. Could there be other things going on in Italy? Uh-huh. Could it be related to the stolen election in America in 2020? Uh-huh. Draghi has consistently pushed for a reformist agenda, and his work has softened previous concerns among investors regarding the stability of Italy's economy. You got that? Italy was stabilized under Draghi, according to investors. Now, who are those investors? Are they World Economic Forum partners as well? Why, yes, they are. Because the World Economic Forum agenda is to take over countries, making those countries very friendly to the partner organizations aligned with the World Economic Forum. That is the metric for them. Stability in a nation means their agenda can be implemented without pushback. And remember, the global state propaganda media would describe Joe Biden's administration in the exact same way. Things are much more stable now with Joe Biden in the position of fake president. Now we have the adults back in the room and investors, the very same investors, feel much more comfortable with the stability of the United States under Joe Biden than they did with the United States under Donald Trump. What a difference it makes who's leading the country and whether or not they're completely aligned and compromised by the World Economic Forum and the Global Communist Agenda. It's incredible. But this new setback risks efforts to secure post-pandemic funds from the EU and also comes as Europe pushes hard to wean itself off Russian hydrocarbons. Gotta get off those hydrocarbons, don't we?
And this is going to risk Italy's efforts to secure post-pandemic funds from Europe. They need that European money because it was promised to them by the World Economic Forum and their partners. And they made certain moves that depend on that financing coming through. That's kind of the forcing function, the mechanism which keeps Italy's government aligned with the World Economic Forum's agenda, despite the will of Italy's people. Isn't it incredible how that works? What sort of post-pandemic funds are actually needed? Can't you just reopen your country and let everybody go back to normal life? Well, you could do that if you actually cared about the financial future of the country. But instead, you care about continuing to be aligned with the World Economic Forum agenda. And to do that, you need other people's money. And you need World Economic Forum investors and partners to be funneling money into your country. Italy is due to have new parliamentary elections before June 2023, but the latest uncertainty in Rome could bring that forward. Draghi, despite still having a majority in the Italian parliament without the support of the five-star movement, has previously said he would not be available to lead another executive. So we shall see how that goes. But the thing to keep an eye out is, just like in Sri Lanka, the media's coming attempts to name a successor and to normalize the idea of that successor taking power so long as that successor is also aligned with the World Economic Forum agenda. It will be very, very interesting to see how this unfolds. So let's jump briefly back into the world of the very deadly pandemic. This is from the Epoch Times. New York COVID-19 quarantine rules unconstitutional and illegal, according to a judge. A New York Supreme Court judge this month quietly ruled that regulations mandating that people infected with or exposed to highly contagious communicable diseases be quarantined are a violation of state law, declaring them null and void. The isolation and quarantine procedures known as Rule 2.13 were enacted in February. Under the rule, quote, whenever appropriate to control the spread of a highly contagious communicable disease, the state commissioner of health may issue and or may direct the local health authority to issue isolation and or quarantine orders consistent with due process of law to all such persons as the state commissioner of health shall determine appropriate. So basically, the New York government gave itself the power to direct an agency that is ostensibly the health experts, the public health experts, the very people that recommended lockdowns that destroyed society. The government is giving them the power to choose who must be quarantined, under what conditions, and when they must be quarantined literally giving themselves the power to choose a bunch of citizens who must be put into facilities against their will on the basis of what we are told is a public health emergency. Isolations may include those at home or in residential or temporary housing subject to what the public health authority issuing the order determines is quote unquote appropriate. However, the rule notes 
that, quote, where symptoms or conditions indicate that medical care in a general hospital is expected to be required, the isolation location shall be a general hospital. So you can be quarantined into a hospital. And the definition of hospital is assumed to be the one we all know. But couldn't it just be a remote quarantine facility? Thank goodness New York isn't trying to start that whole thing. Oh, wait, they are. Oh, yeah, they are. Three Republican state legislators, Senator George Borrello, Assemblyman Chris Tague, and Assemblyman Michael Lawler, along with Uniting New York State, filed a lawsuit against Democrat Governor Kathy Hochul, Commissioner of Health Mary Bassett, the state's health department, and the Public Health and Health Planning Council. Plaintiffs argued that the isolation and quarantine procedures were in violation of the New York State Constitution and a violation of the separation of powers. It's unconstitutional in our eyes, and anything like that should go through the legislature, Tag told local media. It should have an opportunity to be debated, to be able to have facts brought forth by health professionals and leaders within our communities before we just decide to put something into law. That is obviously true. And that is, at least partially, the basis for the Supreme Court decision that I discussed at length in the last couple weeks, West Virginia versus EPA. In a July 8th ruling, Acting Justice of the Supreme Court of Cattaraugus County, Ronald D. Plotz, sided with the plaintiffs, stating that the rule merely gives lip service to constitutional due process. Involuntary detention is a severe deprivation of individual liberty, far more egregious than other health safety measures, such as requiring mask wearing at certain venues. Involuntary quarantine may have far reaching consequences, such as loss of income or employment and isolation from family, Plotz wrote. And of course, that's correct. Hundreds of millions of people in this world pushed into extreme poverty, massive unemployment, massive isolation. These things led to enormous increases in drug abuse, alcohol abuse, domestic abuse, child abuse, and sexual abuse, as well as depression and anxiety and self-harm and suicide. People were not allowed to leave their loved ones as they died in hospitals as a result of of hospital malpractice based on a protocol that public health experts knew was killing people. Again, and I've been saying this since April or May of 2020, lockdowns are the greatest political, moral, and scientific failure in world history. It is unbelievable what people accepted that their leaders had the ability to do to them. The judge added that there was, quote, no scientific data or expert testimony, end quote, to back up the rule. Respondents offered no scientific data or expert testimony. Why rule 2.13 was a necessary response to combat COVID-19, but instead contend only that it would provide a quick and nimble approach to combating the pandemic wrote the judge. Nevertheless, during oral argument of this matter, at a time when we hope that the worst of the pandemic is behind us, counsel for the respondents were unable to cite any instance 
where the procedure set forth in Rule 2.13 was actually utilized. However, the judge noted in his ruling that the rule is null and void, quote, until the New York legislation acts otherwise, potentially paving the way for future appeals. On Tuesday, Hochul told local media that she would be appealing the court's decision, stating, we feel very confident that if we appeal this, we will be successful. New York Attorney General Letitia James's office on Wednesday formally appealed the state Supreme Court ruling, according to local reports. The Epic Times has contacted James's office for comment. The ruling comes as Hochul's office on Wednesday reported that the seven-day average of COVID-19 cases in New York has risen from 30.53 per 100,000 people to 35.28, while hospitalizations have increased in recent days to 2,397 patients. My God, the horror. However, 57.5% of those people who were hospitalized were admitted for reasons that did not include COVID-19. Oh, I am shocked. Are they still using the tests that don't work and deliver upwards of 90% false positives? Ha, yeah, of course they are. Now, also on the subject of tests that don't work to benefit an authoritarian government trying to justify all of its actions, which are flatly unconstitutional in this country. Let's talk about vaccine induced herpes, and shingles. Oh, wait, I mean, uh, monkeypox. Sorry. This is from the website helio.com. Mayo Clinic is second commercial lab to begin monkeypox testing. Mayo Clinic Laboratories on Monday became the second commercial laboratory in the U.S. to begin monkeypox testing as part of an effort to increase testing capacity and access. And hopefully cases. We're going to get a lot more cases this way. You can't have a new pandemic without cases. What we need is more cases. The ability of commercial laboratories to test for monkeypox is an important pillar in our comprehensive strategy to combat this disease. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, MD, MPH, said in a press release, this will not only increase testing capacity, but also make it more convenient for providers and patients to access tests by using existing provider-to-laboratory networks. According to the CDC, Mayo Clinic Laboratories will accept specimens from anywhere in the country and is expected to perform up to 10,000 tests per week. The company is one of five commercial laboratories that will receive orthopox virus tests from HHS to increase monkeypox testing capacity. LabCorp began testing last week. Man, I wonder if the government is going to incentivize the Mayo Clinic to return positive tests like they did in COVID. I wonder if they'll pay more than the $18,000 per case. Got to funnel that money around somehow. People aren't just going to go out there and commit crimes against humanity for free. The Mayo Clinic said testing will be performed in its Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology in Rochester, Minnesota, which is experienced in testing for rare infectious diseases. Patients can access testing through providers who use Mayo Clinic laboratories as their reference laboratory. Our teams have worked collaboratively with the CDC to validate this test to provide patients with accurate and timely answers. William Morris II, MD, PhD, 
president of Mayo Clinic Laboratories, said in a press release. Access to testing is vital to combat infectious diseases to ensure patients are reducing the spread of the illness and receiving the treatments they need. What kind of tests are they using? Well, for that, let's turn to the National Public Health Information Coalition, where they talk about the Mayo Clinic starting to test for monkeypox. They write, Mayo Clinic Laboratories began testing for monkeypox on Monday using the CDC's test kit, which can detect most non-smallpox-related orthopox viruses, including monkeypox. Mayo Labs plans to start performing up to 10,000 tests per week, with the ability to increase capacity later if needed. LabCorp began testing for monkeypox two weeks ago using the CDC's orthopox virus test, making them the first national laboratory to offer... The PCR test. The company is conducting up to 10,000 tests per week from anywhere in the country. Oh, good. The PCR test, the exact sort of testing process that they used for the coronavirus that detected most often dead viral particles deemed comparable enough to what they theoretically presume the virus looks like based on lab calculations and not the isolated virus responsible for the very deadly pandemic. The CDC expects additional laboratories named by HHS, Aegis Science, Quest Diagnostics, and Sonic Healthcare to begin testing later this summer as the monkeypox outbreak continues. In addition to increased testing, the CDC has issued travel alerts and expanded access to vaccines in response to the outbreak. Oh, good, more vaccines. I hope they're mRNA vaccines because, hey, if it's good enough for coronavirus, it's good enough for monkeypox. Will it prevent infection, transmission, serious illness or death? Of course not, because they're not vaccines. WHO has so far declined to declare the outbreak a public health emergency of international concern, although an emergency committee plans to meet again on July 18th or sooner to discuss the situation. So wouldn't that be great? Maybe Tedros will come out on Monday and tell us that there is a global monkeypox health emergency of international concern, just like he did again this week for the coronavirus. Just look outside the window. If you can't see danger on the horizon, it's because you're not a doctor. Now, this is from the Gateway Pundit today. Gates-funded international organization names 11 viruses as potential candidates for the next pandemic. Had enough of COVID? No worries. According to a Gates-funded international organization, there will be more available in the future. The Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, Gavi, identified 11 viruses that have the potential to cause the next pandemic. The COVID-19 pandemic wasn't the first to devastate the world, and it won't be the last. In a new series, we round up emerging infectious threats that have the potential to erupt into global pandemics, the organization wrote on its website. According to the International Finance Facility for Immunization, Gavi is an international organization created in 2000, a global vaccine alliance, bringing together public and private sectors with the purpose of quote, saving lives and protecting people's health by increasing the use of vaccines in an equitable 
and sustainable manner. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, a founding partner of Gavi, has pledged a total of $4.1 billion to the organization so far. Oh, philanthropists, their charity springs forth from the bottomless well that is their hearts. At the 2020 Global Vaccine Summit, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation announced $1.6 billion for Gavi's next 2021 through 2025 strategic period. Oh, good. They got an overall strategy. In addition to this funding, the foundation pledged $150 million in support of Gavi's COVAX AMC to ensure equitable access to vaccines for AMC eligible economies. That's where our money buys vaccines and sends them to other countries because you wouldn't want them only poisoning Americans. Now, Gavi is listing viruses that have the potential to erupt into global pandemics, as first mentioned in Chief Nerd's telegram. And by the way, Chief Nerd is a great follow. He does excellent covid work. Below is the list of viruses mentioned on Gavi's website or she, by the way, Chief Nerd could be a woman. I'm not trying to misgender this person. Rift Valley fever, hantavirus, another coronavirus, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever. You got that? Because Crimea and Congo, they're basically the same. Strange that this disease exists in Crimea and the Congo. It's almost like the very charitable philanthropists that fund all of these things, along with our own DOD, are moving viruses around the world to various bio labs that don't make bioweapons. You got to remember, a bioweapon is in the eyes of the beholder. They're not creating viruses to be used as bioweapons. They're creating viruses to know how to protect people from the viruses they create. But let's get back to more potential very deadly pandemics. Lassa fever, Marburg, yellow fever, H5N1 and H7N9 influenza. Oh, no. <laughs> Only letters and numbers. It's like someone created my password for me. Horrifying. Chikungunya. Chikungunya. Well, that's from Kenya. And because the name is hard to say, you know it must be scary. Ebola. Ooh, the scariest of them all. And Nipah virus. Bill Gates just takes all of these and creates separate labels for them and then puts them around the uh, the spinner that comes with a game of Twister and you just give it a spin and you're like, uh, right foot green. Oh, no, wait, Hantavirus. And then the media tells you how you're going to die from Hantavirus and they give you pictures of other diseases so that you can know Hantavirus is very, very dangerous. So you need to get two or three or 10 or 50 vaccines. Now let's turn to the Associated Press from yesterday. Ex-CIA engineer convicted in massive theft of secret info. Now, remember again, Associated Press, global state propaganda media. This is the official story. And when you're getting the official story on something that would look bad for those associated with the global communist order, what we are usually getting is some form of limited hangout. 
they will give us some information because they know the story will eventually be unavoidable. So they are trying to preset a narrative and give us the proper framing so that when the story becomes bigger, we'll know that we can already avoid it completely or in part because they've basically given us a little bit of it and told us that everything is a-okay. A former CIA software engineer was convicted Wednesday of federal charges accusing him of the biggest theft of classified information in CIA history. Joshua Schulte, who chose to defend himself at a New York City retrial, had told jurors in closing arguments that the CIA and FBI made him a scapegoat for an embarrassing public release of a trove of CIA secrets by WikiLeaks in 2017. Schulte watched without visibly reacting as U.S. District Judge Jesse M. Furman announced the guilty verdict on nine counts, which was reached in mid-afternoon by a jury that had deliberated since Friday. The so-called Vault 7 leak revealed how the CIA hacked Apple and Android smartphones in overseas spying operations and efforts to turn Internet-connected televisions into listening devices. Hey, you know, all those smart devices in your house, you know what smart means? It means it's connected to the internet and all the devices on your network can be connected to one another. And those devices, of course, can be hacked into. So are you being monitored by your television? Are you being monitored by your refrigerator? Well, you could be. And I know, I know. How are we supposed to make progress if we aren't able to talk to our refrigerators? Don't know. Don't know. I actually don't know how we got this far in human evolution without being able to talk to our refrigerators. Prior to his arrest, Schulte had helped create the hacking tools as a coder at the agency's headquarters in Langley, Virginia. A sentencing date was not immediately set because Schulte still awaits trial on charges of possessing and transporting child pornography. He has pleaded not guilty. Attorney Sabrina Schroff, who advised Schulte during the trial, told Schulte's mother after the verdict that the outcome was a kick to the gut, the brain and heart. It was unclear if Schroff was expressing her own sentiments or Schulte's. In his closing, Schulte claimed he was singled out, even though, quote, hundreds of people had access to the information. Hundreds of people could have stolen it, end quote. The government's case is riddled with reasonable doubt, he added. There's simply no motive here. Prosecutors allege the 33-year-old Schulte was motivated to orchestrate the leak because he believed the CIA had disrespected him by ignoring his complaints about the work environment. So he tried, quote, to burn to the ground, end quote, the very work he had helped the agency to create, they said. Assistant U.S. Attorney David Denton encouraged jurors to consider evidence of an attempted cover-up, including a list of chores Schulte drew up that had an entry reading, delete suspicious emails. <laughs> U.S. Attorney Damian Williams said in a statement that Schulte was convicted, quote, of one of the most brazen and damaging acts of espionage in American history. Williams and Schulte, motivated by resentment toward the CIA, leaked to the public 
and to U.S. adversaries, some of the nation's, quote, most valuable intelligence gathering cyber tools used to battle terrorist organizations and other malign influences around the globe. You see that he put everyone in danger by letting them know that the CIA was using people's smart devices to listen to them. That's exactly what they said about Edward Snowden and Julian Assange as well. The prosecutor said Schulte knew the leak would render the CIA's tools essentially useless, having a devastating effect on our intelligence community by providing critical intelligence to those who wish to do us harm. And sure, it's been five years since he did it and the world is still here, but they're probably right. It was very, very dangerous to let the citizens know what's going on and when they're being recorded by the CIA. While behind bars awaiting trial, prosecutors said he continued his crimes by trying to leak additional classified materials as he carried on an information war against the government. Once the jury left the courtroom for deliberations, the judge complimented Schulte on his closing argument. Mr. Schulte, that was impressively done, Furman said. Depending on what happens here, you may have a future as a defense lawyer. A mistrial was declared at Schulte's original 2020 trial after jurors deadlocked on the most serious counts, including illegal gathering and transmission of national defense information. Schulte told the judge last year that he wanted to serve as his own attorney for the retrial. He has not announced whether he wants to represent himself at his next trial, which involves allegations that after leaving the CIA, Schulte moved to New York from Virginia with a computer that contained images and videos of child pornography he had downloaded from the Internet from 2009 to March 2017. Schulte has been behind bars without bail since 2018. Last year, he complained in court papers that he was a victim of cruel and unusual punishment, awaiting the two trials in solitary confinement inside a vermin infested cell of a jail where inmates are treated like caged animals. Now, obviously, if he was downloading and possessing child pornography, that is indefensible in every possible way. It's strange, though, if that's the case, and he really did have that, and that was proven and not just planted on his computer, that the judge would suggest if he was found not guilty that he may have a future as a defense lawyer. That's not the sort of thing you might say to someone who is guilty of possession of child pornography. Now, finally, sticking with the intelligence threat of the global evil twin represented in America by the deep state and the uniparty, let's go to Mint Press News. Mint Press News does great investigative work but the pieces are usually long, so I'm not going to be able to knock out the whole thing here. So I'm going to pick off a bit from the beginning and a bit from the end. And if you guys want to go read all of this for yourself and see the examples and exhibits, go to mintpressnews.com. The headline is meet the ex CIA agents deciding Facebook's content policies. It is an uncomfortable job for anyone trying to draw the line between harmful content, and protecting freedom of speech. It's a balance, Aaron says. In this official Facebook video, Aaron identifies himself as the manager of, quote, the team that writes the rules for Facebook, end quote, determining, quote, what is acceptable and what is not. 
Thus, he and his team effectively decide what content the platform's 2.9 billion active users see and what they don't see. Aaron is being interviewed in a bright warehouse turned studio. He is wearing a purple sweater and blue jeans. He comes across as a very likable, smiley person. It's not an easy job, of course, but someone has to make those calls. Transparency is incredibly important in the work that I do, he says. Aaron is CIA, or at least he was until July 2019, when he left his job as a senior analytic manager at the agency to become senior product policy manager for misinformation at Meta, the company that owns Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. In his 15-year career, Aaron Berman rose to become a highly influential part of the CIA. For years, he prepared and edited the president of the United States' daily brief, writing and overseeing intelligence analysis to enable the president and senior U.S. officials to make decisions on the most critical national security issues, especially on the impact of influence operations on social movements, security, and democracy. His LinkedIn profile reads, none of this is mentioned in the Facebook video. Berman's case is far from unique, however. Studying Meta's reports, as well as employment websites and databases, Mint Press has found that Facebook has recruited dozens of individuals from the Central Intelligence Agency, as well as many more from other agencies like the FBI and Department of Defense. These hires are primarily in highly politically sensitive sectors, such as trust, security, and content moderation, to the point where some might feel it becomes difficult to see where the U.S. national security state ends and Facebook begins. Gosh, that is shocking. I am shocked to learn that the company, Facebook, the platform, Facebook, that started as a DARPA program called LifeLog, could somehow, somehow have this close connection to the American deep state in the Department of Defense and Intelligence and Law Enforcement communities. I am floored by this information. In previous investigations, this author has detailed how TikTok is flooded with NATO officials, how former FBI agents abound at Twitter, and how Reddit is led by a former war planner for the NATO think tank, the Atlantic Council. But the sheer scale of infiltration of Facebook blows these away. Facebook, in short, is utterly swarming with spooks. In a political sense, trust, safety, and misinformation are the most sensitive parts of Meta's operation. It is here where decisions about what content is allowed, what will be promoted, and who or what will be suppressed are made. These decisions affect what news and information billions of people across the world see every day. Therefore, those in charge of the algorithms hold far more power and influence over the public sphere than even editors at the largest news outlets. There are a number of other ex-CIA agents working in these fields. Deborah Berman, for example, spent 10 years as a data and intelligence analyst at the CIA before recently being brought on as a trust and safety project manager for Meta. Little is known about what she did at the agency, but her pre-agency publications indicate she was a specialist on Syria. Between 2006 and 2010, Brian Weisbard, 
was a CIA intelligence officer, his job entailing, in his own words, leading global teams to conduct counterterrorism and digital cyber investigations and identifying online social media misinformation propaganda and covert influence campaigns. Directly after that, he became a diplomat, underlining how close the line is between those two professions and is currently a director of trust and safety, security, and data privacy for Meta. Meanwhile, the LinkedIn profile of Cameron Harris, a CIA analyst until 2019, notes that he is now a Meta trust and safety project manager. Individuals from other state institutions abound as well. Emily Vatcher was an FBI employee between 2001 and 2011, rising to the rank of supervisory special agent. From there, she was headhunted by Facebook and Meta and is now a director of trust and safety. Between 2010 and 2020, Mike Bradow worked for USAID, eventually becoming deputy director of policy for the organization. USAID is a U.S. government-funded influence organization, which has bankrolled or staged multiple regime change operations abroad, including in Venezuela in 2002, Cuba in 2021, and ongoing attempts in Nicaragua. Since 2020, Meta has employed Brad Ow as a misinformation policy manager. Others have similar pasts. Neil Potts, a former intelligence officer with the U.S. Marine Corps, is vice president of trust and safety at Facebook. In 2020, Sharif Kamal left his job as program manager at the Pentagon to take up the post of Meta trust and safety program manager. Joey Chan currently holds the same trust and safety post as Kamal. Until last year, Chen was a U.S. Army officer commanding a company of over 100 troops in the Asia-Pacific region. None of this is to say that any of those named are not conscientious, that they are bad people or bad at their job. Vatcher, for example, helped design Facebook's Amber Alert program, notifying people to missing children in their area. But hiring so many ex-U.S. state officials to run Facebook's most politically sensitive operations raises troubling questions about the company's impartiality and its proximity to government power. Meta is so full of national security state agents that at some point it almost becomes more difficult to find individuals in trust and safety who were not formerly agents of the state. Despite its efforts to brand itself as a progressive, woke organization, the Central Intelligence Agency remains deeply controversial. It has been charged with overthrowing or attempting to overthrow numerous foreign governments, some of them democratically elected. Our democracy! Helping prominent Nazis escape punishment after World War II. Yep, that's 100% true as well. Funneling large quantities of drugs and weapons around the world. Penetrating domestic media outlets routinely spreading false information and operating a global network of black sites where prisoners are repeatedly tortured. Therefore, critics argue that putting operatives from this organization in control of our news feeds is deeply inappropriate. One of those critics is Elizabeth Murray, who in 2010 retired from a 27-year career at the CIA and other U.S. intelligence organizations. This is insidious, Murray told Mint Press, adding, I see it as part of the gradual and sinister migration of ambitious young professionals originally trained with CIA's virtually unlimited U.S. taxpayer-funded pot of resources to surveil and target 
the bad guys during the so-called global war on terror of the post 9-11 era. Mint Press also contacted Facebook Meta for comments, but has not received a response. And in the interest of time, let's jump down to a section headlined Digitally Swinging Elections. Since its beginnings in 2004, Facebook has grown to become a massive global empire and by far the most important news distributor the planet has ever known. The company boasts almost 3 billion active users, meaning that nearly two in five people worldwide use the platform. A recent 12 country study suggested that around 30% of the entire world gets its news via their Facebook feeds. This gives whoever is in charge of curating those feeds and controlling those algorithms inestimable power. It also represents a serious national security threat for all other countries, especially those that might wish to take a path independent from the United States. That those people are in large part former spooks makes this threat all the more perilous. And you might say, well, if you're America first, shouldn't America do whatever it can to gain advantage on other countries? And the answer to that in principle is no. Yes, we will always look out for America first. But if we are going to prioritize our own sovereignty and our own nationalism, then the principal stand to take is that other countries are allowed to prioritize their own sovereignty and their own nationalism. And so using information operations to deceive the citizens of the world is antithetical in principle to that cause. This is far from a hypothetical quandary. In November, less than a week before the country's election, Facebook took the decision to delete hundreds of pages and accounts belonging to individuals and groups that supported the Nicaraguan Sandinista Party, a longtime U.S. target for regime change. These included many of the nation's most influential journalists and media outlets. Considering that around half the country uses the platform for news and entertainment, the decision could barely have been more intrusive and was likely designed to try to swing the election toward the pro-U.S. candidate and pro-U.S. being defined as pro-CIA, pro-globalism, pro-evil twin. Facebook claims that those accounts were bots engaged in inauthentic behavior. When those individuals migrated onto Twitter, recording videos identifying who they were to show they were not bots, Twitter immediately deleted those accounts too, in what was dubbed a coordinated attempt at suppression. The individual behind this attempt was the aforementioned Ben Nemo, who co-authored the unconvincing report full of questionable assumptions and allegations. And that was from the section that I skipped. This included an insinuation that accounts following a pattern of activity whereby their Facebook usage levels peaked in the morning and afternoon and dwindled to almost nothing after midnight Nicaragua time suggested they were bots. That is lunacy. My account is most busy in the morning and the afternoon and not after midnight because in the morning I'm on between sets at the gym in the afternoon, I'm on after recording my show and then I sleep. Sorry for all the personal information, but I can't believe that I might be alone in those sorts of habits. Facebook was also used by right wing Cubans 
to attempt a U.S.-backed color revolution against the ruling communist government last year. A color revolution? Those things only happen elsewhere, and definitely not in the United States. Giving any individual or group that much control over the airwaves of communication raises huge questions about national security and sovereignty, doubly so when those individuals are so intimately connected to the U.S. national security state. When asked what the public's reaction would be to the news of such an intimate connection between Facebook and her former employer, Murray stated she was unsure whether many would be bothered. I would like to think that the American public would strenuously object. However, the CIA and other agencies have worked over many decades to cultivate a positive, indeed almost glamorous, image in the eyes of the vast majority of the public, mostly through TV series, Hollywood films, and favorable media coverage. So sadly, my guess is that the vast majority of the public probably believes that these are the folks who should be in charge. However, she said, the news would very likely land in a very different way in countries that have been the target of Washington's ire. As you're no doubt aware, the CIA has an atrocious public reputation in most parts of the world, she added. And it's getting there in America as well. Spooks in every department. Mint Press has found former representatives of the U.S. national security state in virtually every politically sensitive department at Facebook. This includes even higher levels. Between 2020 and 2021, Chris Rose was a member of Meta's Governance Oversight Board, the group responsible for the overall direction of the platform. He left his job as the director of national intelligence as the president's daily brief writer to take up that role. Before that, he had spent six years at the CIA as a political and counterterrorism analyst. Meanwhile, Gina Kim Sumilis, Facebook's director and associate general counsel for the Asia Pacific region, spent nearly 12 years in the CIA before moving into the tech private sector. There is also considerable overlap with the U.S. government in the company's front-facing staff. Katia Karoma, for instance, was plucked from her position as an FBI spokesperson in January 2020 to become media relations manager at Facebook. Jeffrey Gelman, policy communications manager for Facebook's oversight board, is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and held influential roles in both the State Department and National Security Council. And executive communications spokesman Kevin Lewis spent many years in the White House as President Obama's spokesperson. Meta's vice president of legal strategy is Rachel Carlson Lieber, who went straight from the CIA into Facebook. Her first role at the Silicon Valley giant was as head of the North American Regulatory and Strategic Response, a department that continues to feature a number of former state officials. This includes head of strategic programs, Robert Flame, who spent more than 20 years at the FBI, and Aaron Clancy, who left a 16-year career at the State Department to become a manager of strategic response policy. Clancy's official work centered around U.S. policy in the Middle East. Her own bio boasts that she worked on the U.S. sanctions regime placed on Iraq and Sudan. She also worked at the U.S. Embassy in Damascus at the time of the Arab Spring and the beginning of the Syrian Civil War. It is known that she also coordinated closely with the White Helmets, a controversial aid organization that some have alleged is far too close to Al-Qaeda and its affiliates. Even after her Facebook appointment, Clancy moonlighted as a member of the Council on Foreign Relations 
and as a fellow of the Atlantic Council, a hawkish body that serves as NATO's brain trust. And how about that? Syrian civil war, white helmets glorified in documentaries that Hollywood awarded in their award shows, and the Arab Spring. All of these were influence operations directed by these people with DARPA tech and programs, and then were brought to the United States as influence operations against the citizens of the United States in 2020 by General Stanley McChrystal and his organization Defeat Disinfo that worked with a marketing organization called Main Street One. Their influence operation was to subdue Trump supporters and help the evil twin faction on behalf of the global communist order install a president who would implement their agenda. In the Middle East, we were told all of this was a counterterrorism operation. And of course, they're doing the same thing while reclassifying American citizens as domestic terrorists. Why are these national security state officials so attractive to Meta? One reason Murray explained is financial. By snagging a CIA employee, a company can save a considerable sum, she said, explaining that the individual has likely undergone extensive professional training at taxpayer expense and probably has a security clearance, something that is difficult, expensive, and time-consuming to obtain in private sector work. Therefore, companies dealing with matters of state secrecy, such as defense contractors, have historically courted both current and former officers to fill their ranks, enticing them with much higher salaries than they can receive in government service. Oh man, that's so great for them. They get to make more money by working for these companies, and these companies get to benefit more by having the advisement of people with security clearances. I wonder if that provides them undue competitive advantages. What is new, or at least newly known to us, is that now these professionals are being sought after by social media companies like Facebook, Google, and others who are now heavily into monitoring, surveilling, and censoring content, and then sharing data about users with U.S. government entities, Murray added. Murray, the former CIA agent, such as the need for these individuals in these fields that private companies often hire former national security agents to do the recruiting for them. For instance, John Papp, who spent 12 years at the CIA as a senior intelligence officer and four years as an imagery analyst at the Defense Intelligence Agency, went on to work as a recruiter for many of the largest defense contractors in Washington. These include Booz Allen Hamilton, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, IBM, and Lockheed Martin. Today, he works as a recruiter for Meta. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Meta also employs former spooks for their internal security operations. The company's vice president, chief security officer, is Nick Lavrian, a former counterterrorism operations officer at the CIA, while its head of insider protection is ex-CIA operational psychologist and undercover officer Nicole Alford. Meanwhile, Meta's director of global security governance, the individual reportedly responsible for the personal safety of Facebook co-founder Mark Zuckerberg, is Jill Levins-Jones. Jones left her job as a U.S. Secret Service special agent to take the appointment. And director of global security operations, Alexander Carrillo, or Carrillo, continued on as a lieutenant commander in the Coast Guard 
for several months after his appointment at Facebook. The company also hires former feds to work directly with law enforcement on legal issues. One example of this is former FBI special agent Brian Kelly. 45 years ago, legendary journalist Carl Bernstein released an investigation documenting how the CIA had managed to infiltrate U.S. and global media. The CIA had placed hundreds of agents into newsrooms and had convinced hundreds more reporters to collaborate with them. These included individuals at some of the most influential outlets, including the New York Times. The CIA needed to do this clandestinely because any attempt to do so openly would harm the effectiveness of the operation and provoke stiff public resistance. But by 2015, there was barely a murmur of disapproval when Reuters announced that it was hiring 33-year veteran CIA manager and director Don Scalici as a global director, even when the company announced that her primary responsibility was to, quote, advance Thomson Reuters ability to meet the disparate needs of the U.S. government, end quote. So again, when I call outlets like Reuters part of the global state propaganda media apparatus, not joking, they really are that. Reuters also has pharma execs on its board. And of course, what the writer is referring to, and I'm uncertain why he didn't call it by name, but he's talking about Operation Mockingbird. Facebook, however, is vastly more influential than the New York Times or Reuters, reaching billions of people daily. In that sense, it stands to reason that it would be a prime target of any intelligence organization. It has become so big and ubiquitous that many consider it a de facto public commons and believe it should no longer be treated as a private company. Considering who is making many of the decisions on the platform, that distinction between public and private entities is even more blurry than many presume. And this holds true for Twitter and for Google. So once again, consider the information environment, our DOD and intelligence community and law enforcement community all have former officials in the media organizations and in the social media companies. So they are in charge in large part of putting out the information available to Americans and deciding what information will be available to Americans. If the things I'm saying or the things other independent journalists are saying or media outlets are saying don't conform to the narrative and don't reinforce their narrative, if in fact they begin to prove to people that the CIA narrative is in fact not true in any way, then they have the power to make sure no one sees it. And they have this power around the world. The power is not theoretical and it's not just private companies making decisions that are in the best interest of the companies. These organizations work hand in glove. And as was just mentioned, this relationship is so symbiotic that you can't tell where one begins and the other ends. It is the total fusion of government, especially the worst parts of government with the tech organizations to control and propagandize and censor American citizens and the citizens of the world. This is not a conspiracy theory. It is right in your face. And so if you think 
that you are getting reliable information from the authoritative sources while hewing to the central narrative, I'm sorry, my friend, you are totally deceived and totally wrong. They ran an Arab Spring operation in the United States, and for much of the population, it worked. And because they think they have ousted the orange man, and because they listen to the central narrative when it tells them that the Arab Spring was the greatest happening that the world has ever seen, they're more than happy to simply accept it. People who have been against the CIA and law enforcement and government, particularly the Department of Defense, for their entire lives are more than happy to accept their control when it reinforces what they already believe and the world that they believe they're helping to bring into existence. That grand communist utopia that we will achieve as soon as we give them more power, always more power. I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!